And that's usually the question you want to ask. Am I pushing something away or am I, do I need it? Am I in need of it? And if I don't have it, I feel incomplete. And I was just like, oh, oh, I get it. It's like this big light bulb. This is the practice. It's not about these postures. It's not about how I perform them. It's really my relationship to them. And oh yeah, this is a metaphor to my relationship with everything else in my life. So then, then you start to look at everything differently. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the GLOW Podcast. On today's episode, GLOW instructor Katanya Henderson interviews fellow GLOW instructor Ivory Jenkins. Their conversation covers their experience as professional dancers and then transitions into what Ivory calls her soul travel to India. Ivory reads a story about her travels there and ends the interview with a short practice. Katanya and Ivory discuss the differences between the dancer and yogi mindsets. As she notes, dancers naturally are more performance oriented and when in rehearsal, often look at themselves in a mirror. Yoga invites us to also look inward Ivory quotes another GLOW instructor, Annie Carpenter, who said in a class Ivory was taking with her, comparison is the thief of joy. It was a light bulb moment for her and one that Ivory was able to carry forward to build a deeper, more inward, and more restorative practice. I hope you enjoy this conversation between Katanya Henderson and Ivory Jenkins. so excited and thrilled for you all to um, be a part of this conversation that I'm having with Ivory Jenkins. Um, Ivory and I, I feel like our worlds have intertwined <laughs> many of times, whether that was through dance or choreography or being in a certain city at the same time or through Yoga Glow. And I am thrilled for you all to get to know Ivory a bit more um, during our conversation. And so I want to start out, usually, you know, I don't really go into tell us about what you've done all your life in your profession, but I do think your journey um, to yoga is very interesting and we have so much in common and I would love to start off with your journey through dance. First, thank you, Ketanya, for having me. Um, I, to our listeners, I have, Ketanya and I have, yes, our paths have just intertwined and crossed several times. And when they crossed via glow, I was just the most excited, I think. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, glow. This is exactly who you want, you know, as we (laughs) added fitness to the platform. And I was just, yeah, really happy. As well, I am very happy to be here today. So thank you for having me. Um, So my path, I don't think it's that interesting. It's dancer turned yogi. It's like, how many times has that happened? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think that's a dancer brain because I feel the same way. When anyone asks me, tell me about your background, I'm like, okay, I tell them like five things. And then I'm like, okay, can we talk about something more interesting? No, I I think it's so important for people to know how you came to dance as a form of expression. Um, So I love for you to talk about that. I know you're from Chicago. I started... There was a woman, her um, name is Millie Mildred Cruzat, 
and um, the late Mildred Cruzat. She actually passed from this plane to the next last year, and she is an icon in Chicago. Um, and she started her dance career actually at the age of 40 and is just a larger than life woman. Anyway, she was close with my family and we're at dinner one day and she looks at me and I'm slumped over, probably how I'm slumped over right now. I can hear her in my mind, like sit up ivory. Um, and she says to me exactly that sit up straight. You're not sitting up straight. We can't see you. We can't see your spirit can't move up and down your body if you're sitting slumped like that. And I'm probably, I don't know, 11 or something. I'm like, my spirit, what are you talking about, lady? So she was really the um, the entryway into dance. And I started with her. She basically taught movement classes in her um, apartment building in the fitness center that lived there. And after a few classes, she said, you need to meet Homer Bryant. And Homer Bryant was a former dancer with the Dance Theater of Harlem. Um, under the tutelage of um, Arthur Mitchell. And he opened a dance studio in Chicago. And so then I went and I studied under Homer Bryant, who is uh, still to this day a mentor to me. And that was the beginning of my dance career. Um, I continued on as a student I graduated high school. There was a moment after high school, right? You decide, am I going to pursue this as a profession and not go to uh, university? Or do I go to university maybe with the thought of never really dancing again professionally? I don't think you have to make that choice anymore. But I did make the choice to go to school. I went Mm -hmm. to Northwestern for four years. And at Northwestern, I found a fantastic student-led, student-run, student-choreographed, student-lit dance company called Graffiti. And they were dancers like myself who made this choice. We we are good at what we do, but we want to go to school or our parents made us go to school, whatever the case was. And so um, I danced. It's audition. You had to audition for it. And I started my freshman year and went all the way through senior year. So I was choreographing, I was dancing at a pretty high level with other dancers who I also consider, I was like, oh, wow, these, these dancers are really good. Um, so that just kind of like kept my chops up. I would go back to Chicago. Northwestern is on the suburbs of, in the suburbs of Chicago. So it was really easy for me to get to class still if I wanted to take um, in the city. And then after I graduated, I remember I was at a, I want to say an audition, but it's not an audition. It's an interview for the rest of the world. (laughs) It all feels like an audition, but I was at an interview for a um, position post-college. It was at an advertising firm in Chicago called Burrell Advertising Agency. And I was at a cubicle of someone who worked there and they had a poster of a dancer from the Ailey Company the Alvin Ailey American Dance Company in New York City. And I saw that and it was probably um, Linda in the crossed arms in the side jump. Uh, I feel like that's what it was. Um, And I saw that picture and I was just like, what are you doing here? You really want to dance. 
And after that, I auditioned <laughs> for several dance companies that summer. I just did like an audition tour, mostly of the black contemporary dance companies. And I auditioned for Dallas Black Dance Theater in Dallas, Texas. And I, um, they accepted me. I mm -hmm. left uh, Chicago, packed up all my things. My dad drove me to Dallas the, in the fall. Um, across country from Chicago with all our stuff in a U-Haul. And then that was kind of the beginning of my dance career, as well as my life on my own, my life as an artist, um, and all the things that came with that. I want to interject you for just a second. Um, it's so funny you said that you were in a cubicle and you saw this poster of Linda. I, I know what, I think yep. it's the costume <laughs> with the orange that she has on, yes. Um, Ailey dancers are just so dynamic and so beautiful. They're like these, I don't know, like almost from different worlds. <laughs> and I remember being five, going to the Fox Theater in Atlanta and seeing Ailey for the first time. And I knew right then and there, I was like, I want to be a dancer. So I know that feeling of like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and I was also thinking like, you know, our parents are part of the generation of you work at one specific corporation for 20, 30, 40 years. And I feel like our generation was the first of the generations to do what you want to do. And I think that's so awesome that your parents were on board, <laughs> U-Haul and all. Yeah, for sure. I, they were really wonderful. I mean, my mother is a chiropractor and an acupuncturist. So it's the healing arts. My dad mm -hmm. is uh, a sound engineer. He worked on movies and commercials. So he was the guy with the boom or the one you would come to mm -hmm. to get mic'd up um, with these headphones that I have on right now. I'm a, I, my dad <laughs> has always uh, worn these. Even this mic, it's, I know it's a good mic because I know um, the mics that he used to have in the basement anyway. So both of them were in the arts, I feel, and, uh, didn't have necessarily traditional nine to five jobs. My mom mm -hmm. had her practice, but she still, uh, that was interwoven with taking care of us, myself and my three brothers and sisters. Um, and then my dad also, it was job to job. So, you know, one set would close down and then he'd go to another one. And sometimes there wouldn't be any sets for a couple months and then he'd be on set for four months, you know, so mm -hmm. that, uh, was a, I guess perhaps there's some kids who don't see that, you know, they see their, their dads and their moms go to work and they come home and then they do it again the next day. So I just had kind of a different um, setting that I, and I, I knew yeah. that was okay too. And I'd be okay. And you could make a living and raise a family. Uh, I did though have I, my mother's uncle, my great uncle, he was like, Oh no, you gotta go to college. <laughs> yes. Uh, what, excuse me. There, <laughs> there has to be one reasonable voice. That's like, no, this is not the path you want to go through. Trust me. <laughs> and to, to his credit i understand where he's coming from because he's the generation before our parents who they had to go to colleges that were still segregated and for mm -hmm. them to go to school 
to get the higher education. It was a lot. It was a lot that mm -hmm. they had to go through. He, um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, went to Northwestern, which is where I graduated from. But still, but he had to stay at the YMCA mm -hmm. for um, the classes that he would, so that he couldn't stay on campus. Anyway, so it was a big deal. It was like, no, you have the opportunity. You, you got into some colleges. Yeah, you're gonna go. So. <laughs> He wasn't yeah. my mom or dad, but still an influential um, elder who I'm glad I listened to him. Yeah. So after Dallas Black Dance Theater, I was there for, I think it was three, three or four years. And then I moved to New York, which was a big move. Uh, I gambled on myself and uh, saved up. I didn't have a lot of money because I didn't get paid a lot of money at Dallas Black <laughs> Dance Theater. I go back to my tax returns and I'm like, how, how? How, exactly, how? <laughs> <laughs> we made it work. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, dancers should be paid more though. Absolutely. But after, that's a whole nother podcast, right? <laughs> so after Dallas, I moved to New York City. I had maybe a month and a half's worth of, you know, rent and expenses saved up. I stayed on one of my best friends to this day, Casey Rodder. I stayed on her. Uh, she had a guest bedroom and there was a blow up mattress she put in there for me. I stayed there for about a month and then, mm. you know, did the thing that you do when you're in New York, you make it work. Um, gig, gig after gig. Yeah, you gig. And the gigging was good. I had a commercial agent, so um, I did a lot of commercials, uh, television spots, um, movies and it worked. I also supplemented the income with, uh, tutoring. I was a tutor at a school for a while, um, restaurant jobs, all those things. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, keeping the dream alive in New York city. And I was there for, I think another three or four years. And then I auditioned for Cirque du Soleil while I was there in New York, they were looking to um, hire a bunch of dancers for several shows. And mm -hmm. actually the show that um, I got picked up for was the show in Macau. Interesting. Yes, so they were, I don't know if that show ever opened, but they were there. Then we had the financial crash of, what year is this? That was 2014? Mm -hmm. Or no, maybe this was, sorry, what year are we in? We're in 2022 now. So I know this was 2007. That was the financial crisis of 2007. So anyway, that show ended up dissolving. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't launch it, at least when I was getting ready to go. So then they had another show, Viva Elvis, yeah. that um, they were also casting for. And actually the director, Vincent Patterson, who directs directed um, some of your favorite Michael Jackson and Madonna videos. He was the director of Viva Elvis and he knew my sister. My sister is also a dancer because she had done a reality TV show called Step It Up and Dance. And she was yes. one of the dancers and he was one of the judges. Um, and so they ended up working together on something else after the show. He really loved her. He wanted her to come and do Viva Elvis. And he asked her, he said, I have your sister's profile from Cirque. Do you all work well together? 
because I don't need any sibling rivalry <laughs> on my show. So let me know. And she was like, yeah, absolutely. So that was the green light. And then um, I signed the contract to move to, well, first we went to Montreal and we uh, set up the show there. And then from mm -hmm. there, we moved to Vegas into the, the theater at the Aria. Cirque du Soleil, that is such a specific time in my dance career, I remember. Um, how was the audition process for you? Because it was very different for me when you auditioned for Cirque. Were you there with like 100 dancers? Like, yes. what was it? Okay. There were tons of dancers. It was a three-day audition process. It was intense. Uh, the first day was just massive cuts. Uh, the second day, and there was all different types of dance that they were throwing at us just to kind of see what would stick on whom. And mm -hmm. then the second day was more um, like clown work, more mm -hmm. acting. Um, and then the third day was the final cuts. And I remember on the second cut, it was uh, Rick, Rick Tiha. Yeah. You remember him? So yeah. he uh, came up to me at the end of the day. And he was like, we almost cut you. Get it together. Oh. I know you can do this. We need more. Just like dig, dig, dig for 100% more. And so then the next day I came back and I gave them a bunch more and yeah. Got the gig. How, how long was the audition like in terms of All duration day. during the, oh wow, yeah. Yeah, it was 10 to five. I, th All I day. think, I don't know that a lot of people understand what an audition for dancers really looks like and feels like it is like a marathon and you have to bring tricks up your <laughs> sleeve <laughs> wear outfits you know yes costume changes there were several it is actually a performance it is a performance that is happening in a room with numbers on your chest sometimes um that's yeah it's a strange I, I, place it is because because you have to bring this part of yourself that you don't access all day, every day, maybe not even often. You save it for a performance. And that's what they need to see in order to know that you can bring this to an audience on stage. And so it is, uh, and I, and, and maybe, you know, as a dancer, you go to class every single day. You do the same sort of exercises, uh, mobility and strength work to make sure that you can repeat these things on stage. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, that's a performance also, right? Like yeah. you can see yourself in the mirror, you do partner work. But sometimes it feels meditative. Right. Mm -hmm. There's something still that's not to the edge of, of, of what you could bring on stage. Mm -hmm. And so I think because I... I took class every day. I and I was so happy that he said that to me, Rick. You're not bringing enough. We need to see more because maybe you or for myself, I would uh, just become used to allowing the technique, what I can do, to speak for itself, mm -hmm. and maybe not add in my face or the theatrics that you need to bring in as well. Sure. So. And you needed that with Cirque. Like I remember when we moved to Montreal, one of the we had to take classes, and one of the classes was clown classes. So we mm -hmm. did a handful of just how do you project with your face, with no voice, with no dance, 
just with yourself, your body to an audience. And that was really helpful and eye-opening. Yeah. Had you ever worked at that capacity, like, like the, a company that has millions of dollars in a budget, had you ever worked with a company like that, that had that kind of access to that and you were given, I mean, I just remember going back to that dancer budget and I, <laughs> I remember to this day, I made $26,000 a year working for a small dance company and going from a small dance company to Cirque, I was blown away at what a budget can do for a dance show. Yes. Were you, did you have that feeling? Like when you went to Montreal, were you like, what is this big machine? Montreal was, yes. I mean, it was basically like an Olympic, the Olympic village, but for circus arts. They mm -hmm. had a separate building where, where we all lived with dormitories, basically. And it wasn't just our show that was there, but there were other shows. Or there were new artists who were training for other shows that were already on the road, uh, but they were perfecting their acts. And then across mm -hmm. the street from the quote-unquote Olympic Village, you have <laughs> the 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 space where everything happens and not only the performance elements of it but you also have the costumes which mm -hmm. we know if you've ever seen a Cirque show is the best part mm -hmm. the costumes the and the, then there's the makeup and all of this is in this big huge building um and there's separate basically like sound stages Mm -hmm. So there's several sound stages and we had one where we were rehearsing and then there's a big, um, you know, thing that connects the two rooms. You open that up. The dancers are on one side. The acrobats are on another. So, yeah, it was just I mean, I remember going in there and just I look up and I'm like and you look from side to side because the ceilings just go up forever. And you're like, wow. Yeah. Wow. wow. And it was the first time where I. I mean, I guess I had seen that on uh, movie sets. You yeah. know, you can you see what a budget does. Um, yeah, so there were some gigs that I did while I was still in New York where they would fly me to a different city. I'd be on set for a couple of weeks, and then you and you get a nice hotel room that's yourself. You're working as a union dancer, and there's a lot of um, you know cushions that come with that. But in terms of putting on a show that's particularly for dance or for um, the acrobats. Yes, this was by far the, and I was getting paid the most I'd ever been paid and also health insurance. Yeah. The first time where I had real health insurance, which was a game changer. I mean, mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> yeah. And Elvis, I would say, so in terms of dance shows for Cirque at the time, and we're talking like, I want to include Mystere in this as well because Mystere has some dance elements as well. So we're talking like 2005 or before that until when did um, Viva Las Vegas? Vegas. When did Elvis come? <laughs> Viva Elvis. We came in 2000. Let's see. It ended in 2012. And I think we were there. 2009 I want to say yeah you you your cast was the biggest dance cast of right. Cirque I think even to this day 
the largest cast. I'm not sure about Michael ja- uh, Michael Jackson's show, but at the time, definitely. Yeah, um, we had one, two. I'm counting the dancers in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, two, uh, three, four. So there were like 20 girls, mm-hmm. almost 20 girls, and then same as boys. So yeah, we were, I think we had 36 dancers altogether, wow. if I'm not mistaken. And there were yeah. some that came and went. And, wow. But there was a core cast that started the show and then carried the show all the way until, you know, our last performance together. Wow. So we really had a, a fantastic bond. I mean, I'm still great friends with most of, of those dancers. Yeah. Now. Yeah, such a special time. And so you all did, just like we did, 10 shows a week. How did you <laughs> maintain your body? Was it so different in terms of the amount of energy and muscle usage (laughs) was it so much different and how did you maintain your body during your time at Cirque well I wasn't very skillful at it I had several injuries so and that's kind of where yoga came in um it's very different so coming from the concert dance side of things you have a season and you have a touring season um where for a few months out of the year you're on tour before that you are rehearsing that rep for several months to get ready to go on tour and then you Mm kind of stay with that rep while you're on tour and then maybe you come home and you actually have a season at home that's at a local theater so um you're not performing every night Mm -hmm. and you are performing the same rep, but the rep changes every season. So what Mm -hmm. you did last season, maybe there'll be one anchor piece that you, you know, everyone loves and you take that several years in a row, but you're changing things up with Cirque. It was 10 shows a week, like you said, and Mm -hmm. it was the same 10 shows a week, every night, every year. Now, because we were a new show trying to put down roots and grow as one of these shows like Mystere or Love, who had, you know, just gone years upon years with everyone loving it, Viva Elvis was a little different in that I don't think we ever found our roots. So on top of just the 10 shows a week, we were always in rehearsal to Mm. change the show to make it better. It started off and um, one of the reviews was that it just was too old school. So they brought in um, Napoleon and Tabitha mm-hmm. who are uh, famous- Choreographers. Dance choreographers. Directors. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, they reset the show and they changed the costumes, shortened our skirts and gave us deeper V cuts. <laughs> <laughs> pointier bras, all that stuff. Um, So yes, so not only are we doing the shows that we have to do at night, but we're coming in, usually with Cirque, you come in, okay, if your show starts at seven, you come in at six. I would always come in earlier because I needed to take time to warm up. I think the dancers would come in, you know, Mm -hmm. 4.35. But um, I remember a lot of the acrobats who maybe had a, a shorter track. A track is the number of pieces you have throughout the show. 
they don't go on until after intermission. So they mm-hmm. get there at six, whenever the right. call time is. And then you do your makeup, you do a little warm up, and you're up on stage. Um, mm-hmm. So we would have to come in for rehearsal at one. And then you rehearse from one to three, have you know your dinner break, come back for your five, 5.30 call. So it was mm-hmm. just a lot. It was a lot for a long time. And mm-hmm. the dancers took, we were... Um, kind of the core of the of the show. So if something needed to be fixed or you wanted to pad the timing, you just say, well, can you call in the dancers? Let's see what they can do. Let's see if they can make it better. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of these filler pieces to mm-hmm. um, zhuzh up the show. Yeah. I would say of the several times I've watched the show, I felt like you all were on stage 90% of the time where <laughs> at love I, it was a little different because I was a I was like a specific character um I was on maybe collectively 10 minutes for the whole show an, for the whole show if I I mean <laughs> maybe 15 <laughs> what a vast difference I can't right. and so even imagine, imagine your body after that mm-hmm. and that and it yeah, I mean, to some degree, all these shows are always experiments at the beginning. Yeah, And when you're creating a show and you're a Vincent Patterson and you want to make the best show possible, mm-hmm. you pull out all the tricks. Mm-hmm. But then you get on stage and the dancers have to figure out, well, what's actually sustainable? And how am I going to be able to do this for a long period of time? Mm-hmm every day at the fullest capacity that I can Mm -hmm. um, and not ruin my body. And so when Tabitha and Napoleon came to reset it, they really did have that in mind because people were already starting to have injuries. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I remember they had this one, uh, like bouncing down into a squat and up across the stage. And we were like, yeah, our knees aren't going to be able to do this 10 shows a week. So, and they were like, you're right, you're right. Let's take that out. Okay, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Um, A lot of the flips and the jumps and things that the dancers, you know, you say, like in an audition, you bring in all your tricks. It was like, yeah, well, can you do that? That was always the question. Can you do that 10 times a week? Right. And often the answer was, okay, yeah, you're right. No. Yeah. So after Cirque, you... So you were using yoga as a a means to stay flexible. What else, how else did yoga service you during your time at Cirque or just during your time as a dancer primarily? Um, So I found yoga actually rewinding back to Dallas Black Dance Theater when um, our rehearsal director at the time she loved Bikram yoga. And so she had us replace one of our movement classes, which were either ballet or Horton, mm-hmm. um, with Bikram. So every Friday, you could either take the 6 a.m. Bikram class or the 9 a.m. Bikram class. And then mm-hmm. you would skip whatever your movement class was, and we'd go right into rehearsals after lunch um, at 1. So that was when I started Bikram begrudgingly, like, why do I have to do yoga? I'm a dancer. I know my body. I don't need to do some other practice. I could stay home and turn my heat on and, you know, warm up the way that I want to warm up. 
But anyway, I had to go. So I went and um, it stuck with me. I really loved Bikram. There's something that is addictive with mm. the Bikram practice. I think anyone who's done it has can see that, right? It's the same sequence for 60 or 90 minutes. And you come in, you know what you're going to get. It's going to be difficult. There are um, poses that you cannot get. So you're constantly working for them. There's this drive. And that really matched the drive that I needed to be a a dancer at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I liked that. I liked the physicality. I liked going in, sweating, coming out. I felt skinnier. I had this image that I wanted my body to be. My body was never quite that, you know, image that Mm -hmm. you exalt. And so this was another way that I could make myself get here to this place. Mm -hmm. And I continued with the Bikram practice when I moved to New York. I would try to find studios. Um, And then when I got to Vegas, I think this was at a time where Bikram... There was some scandal around Bikram. Studios were taking away the Bikram name. So now hot yoga was beginning to um, blossom. Mm -hmm. And all of those studios that were Bikrams were changing their sequences just a little bit to make it the hot yoga sequence. So I Mm -hmm. found a hot yoga studio there. And that was when um, I was still using no yoga as a way to, um, it, it was aggressive. My Mm -hmm. yoga practice was aggressive and I started a 200 hour, the, uh, studio owner would often say, we want more dancers to teach because they're good teachers. They pick up really quickly and their schedules are so that, you know, you perform at night, their days are open, they can be available for classes. So it was kind of a win-win. So the studio owner was like, why don't you do the 200 hour? Um, We'll subsidize quite a bit of it for you. Like, you know, he made it as enticing as possible. So I did Mm -hmm. my 200 hour yoga training then. And um, it it was a very basic training. It was good at dialogue because Bikram is great at delivering, you know, how you do poses. Uh, You basically study the dialogue. Mm And so that was helpful in many ways, but it was uh, barely scratching the surface of, I think, what I now know yoga to be. Mm. And so walk me through how, like, when did you, I guess, decide to move from dance and further your practice, your studies with yoga? So in Vegas, I found a yoga studio called Yoga Sanctuary. Mm. And um, I took a class there. I don't know how I found it, who led me there. But I found that studio and I took a yoga class and it was the first time the yoga was not aggressive. It Mm. was difficult. It was challenging. But at the end of the practice, maybe the last... 40% of the the class, it was really restorative. Mm. And there was speak about yogic philosophy. And it was a more holistic view of a practice that I had never been introduced to. And there were also more poses. So in the Mm. Bikram series, there's just 26 postures. Mm. And you do those same 26 postures. 
So now I was like, oh, handstands and headstands. Oh, and warrior two. Like, I mean, there was just all these poses that like we didn't do in the Bikram sequence. So um, I was interested. And then there was a teacher who is still my teacher now, and she's actually a senior teacher here on GLOW. Annie Carpenter did a 200-hour teacher training in uh, Vegas at Yoga Sanctuary, and she would come for weekends, and it was over six months, the training, and um, it was really the the moment where things started to click, and mm. I was like, oh, this is a practice for all of me. Mm-hmm. And this is a practice not just for my body. In fact, it's more of a, a science of mind. Mm-hmm. And I was just really intrigued. And um, that was kind of the beginning of these doors being opened up to me. Did you ever find that the dancer mindset clicked or conflicted with the yogi mindset? And how did you work through that, work with it? Yes. As you're transitioning? The the dancer mindset, I think, definitely conflicts with the yogi mindset. At first you don't think so. You think, oh, this is easy. This is movement. I can do all these poses. And so, and it, that kind of gets you because you, um, the ego part of the dancer is like, how can I perform this? And how can I sell it? And how can I make it look really good? And how can I make it look better than everyone else? Because that's in essence our job. So that was like the hook and that hooked me and brought me in. And <laughs> then I remember it, it was Annie. She, she, we were doing a pose and there was another uh, dancer who was in the class that I was taking. And um, she was more flexible than mm. I, way more. She just had lots of facility and the mo- her mobility was super crazy. And we were doing a pose and I remember looking at her and being like defeated in some way. I'm Mm. not, I I can't do it like she can. And seeing that and Annie has a way of just dropping the knowledge, just very simplistic, uh, but profound. And she said, I remember she used the quote, first of all, it was a comparison as the thief of joy. She kind Mm. of dropped that. And then she asked after the pose was complete and we're in child's pose, just reflecting. So what was your connection to the pose? Did you feel, uh, how did she say it? She said, um, were you pushing it away or were you greedy with the pose? It was much more poetic when she said it than the way that I am repeating (laughs) it now. But that was the essence of it, right? Like, were you, and that's usually the question you want to ask, am I pushing something away or am I, uh, do I need it? Am I in need of it? And Mm -hmm. if I don't have it, I feel incomplete. And she asked that, like I said, in a more poetic way. And I was just like, oh, 
oh, I get it. And it's like this big light bulb. This is the practice. It's not about these postures. It's not about how I perform them. It's really my relationship to them. And oh yeah, this is a metaphor to my relationship with everything else in my life. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then, then you start to look at everything differently. Then I start to look at movement differently and the way I'm dancing differently and wishing that I had these teachings earlier in my mm -hmm. dance career so I could have had a more holistic relationship with dance, using it as what it's there for, which is expression mm -hmm. and a way to be close to the divine. Because when you find, you know, I'm sure you felt this on stage where it's just like there's something else moving through you. Yeah. And you feel really connected and there's the music and there's the other dancers and the experience is elevated in mm -hmm. a way that is hard to explain with words. And if I could have connected to that more in my dance career than trying to be perfect, mm -hmm. um, it would have been a different experience, uh, definitely more enjoyable. For sure. Definitely. I That resonates with me a lot because I think as a dancer, the first thing we're taught to do is to look at ourselves and perfect a plie or a tendu, jump higher, you know, be bigger, all of that. And yeah, I wonder what it would have been like had I looked at dance differently then had a different perspective. And you're constantly looking in a mirror all day. Mm -hmm. All day. And that was interesting about the Bikram practice was that there was always a mirror in front of you mm -hmm. because this was a practice with yourself. You were trying to motivate really yourself. I mean, there was definitely positive aspects to that practice and I could see how it would be beneficial to someone uh, if you are trying to move through something Right. Look mm -hmm. at yourself in your own eyes and find your power. And especially if you're working through like a defeatist mindset, I could see yeah. how that would be a great practice. But yeah. um, again, like what practices are sustainable? Right. The 10 shows a week doing the double back, not sustainable. The Bikram practice for a short amount of time, sustainable, but a long mm -hmm. amount of time. You know, am I going to be able to do this in my 50s and 60s? Right. Do right. I want to? Right. <laughs> so after Vegas, I remember you taking a trip to India and um, I just loved, I, I loved watching you um, travel and explore India. Just tell us about your time there and why you decided to go to India and um, yeah, and, and maybe share a little bit of your blog posts. There's this one story that I just, I love. I remember it. <laughs> um, yes. So I called this time in my life soul travel. And I um, decided after Cirque that I needed to do something for myself. I don't know what it was. I just had this calling to travel. And I was single. I... I have kids now. I didn't have any kids. I didn't even think I was, you know, maybe going to have any. I just was at this space in my life where I felt so free and free enough to travel. And I love travel. I've always loved travel. 
Um, I knew I wanted to do it by myself. I wanted to, t I wanted an adventure. So I went to um, India and I knew yoga, you know, had really like left this imprint in my life since being in, in Vegas. It was there for most of my time with Cirque. So I was like, I think I need to go to India. Like this seems to be, um, this seems to just be the right place for me to go. So I traveled to the motherland of yoga, to India. I did three months. This was in 2014. Um, I went to 15 cities. I studied yoga for the first month. I went to Rishikesh. The second month, I was a volunteer teacher with um, a, a non-for-profit, and I was volunteering in the school and also they had a school for boys in the home where I lived and I lived with a, an Indian family. And then I did a Vipassana silent meditation retreat for 10 days. Um, and I just kind of immersed myself in the culture with mm -hmm. the people, the food. Um, India is different from north to south to east to west. And so I was able to see those differences as I traveled. Uh, and one of the places that I went was Varanasi, which is a very special place in India. It's the place that houses the burning guts. So mm. if you are wealthy enough, your body can go to Varanasi and they have basically pallbearers who carry mm. the bodies through the streets, these small winding streets and they all lead down to Mahaganga, which is the uh, the Ganges River. And there where it said that the elements all meet there. So water, air, fire. Um, wow. And then you have the ether that comes up with the, the burning bodies. And it's just, it's wild. Like, I mean, what city do you know where you can go <laughs> and sip tea and like watch people get burned? Um, in a very ceremonial and beautiful way mm -hmm. uh, that can only happen in this very special country. Mm -hmm. So while I was there in Varanasi, um, I met this girl and I wrote a blog post. I kept a blog my whole time there and I have many entries in the blog post from most of the cities I was in. And this was my uh, blog post from... Varanasi. So the name of the blog post is called India and Ivory uh, Reunited. I had just broken up with India because I was, let's see, I was probably 40 days in. It was dirty. I was alone. I was annoyed. I had taken too many trains. They weren't first class. They were, <laughs> I was trying to keep it like kind of grungy and local. You know, I was... Yeah. I had a friend who was like, Ivory, do yourself a favor and book a five-star hotel. Okay. I'm just really tired of reading these blog posts <laughs> and you talking about everything being bad. There are five-star hotels in India and I know you have enough money to book one. So just book one. <laughs> I did take her advice eventually. Um, <laughs> so I will start uh, here. I fell in love in Varanasi, fell in love with a gypsy soul, a sweet soul, but a hard soul and with a guard up so strong, even the sharpest knife breaks upon puncture. I know this soul 
well, so I disappointed myself by falling so hard and so quickly. We only met three times, every day around sunset at my favorite chai shop on the river before my trip to the cremation ceremonies just up the river. Yes, Indy and I are back together. I'm pretty low maintenance, so all it took was a hot shower, a meal, and the sunset on the Ganges. There I sat with my new German friend Oliver, drinking chai, and the gypsy walked right over to us, one hand on her hip, the other arm embracing a basket of flowers for puja, a daily prayer ritual done in honor of Mother Ganga. You buy, she said, as if she was somebody's pushy grandma. No, not today. Ah, one flower, ma'am, she said this time with a lot more honey in her voice. She was only eight. She wore a long, dirty purple tunic over black leggings. Her skin was the color of chai, dark hair, and dark almond-shaped eyes. There was a fire lit within her. She was so alive. She was wise beyond her eight years. She was not a child and probably never given the opportunity to be one. She went to school in the daytime, and by 5 p.m., she was at work selling flowers. I fell for her immediately. She was quick, witty, and smart, and she could sell some flowers. I caught on to her game, though, and began mocking her. She did this fake crying bit when you refused to buy, so I would start crying, too. She looked up shocked, and then mid-tears cracked a smile. She knew I knew her game, so we moved on from flowers to hand games, thumb wars, blowing bubbles and questions about each other. I showed her pictures of home, California, and my family. Your mom, she light, your dad dark. Hmm, your mom light like mine, she said while looking through my camera phone. She told me I needed to cover my shoulders one day. When it was so hot, I said to hell with it and went against Indian tradition and wore a tank top. A young girl walked by us also wearing a tank top. I pointed to her and asked why she could and I couldn't. You big, she little. Then she roughly pulled off the scarf from my head to cover my shoulders. Better, she said. I was too tickled. She could do no wrong. When I came back the next day, I saw her eyes light up and I knew she was happy to see me. The cynical German told me she only lights up at the sight of a customer. I knew he was probably right, but I carried on trying to stay blissfully ignorant. You buy flour today. You say yesterday you buy today. Okay, I'll buy after my chai. She took my word as an excuse to put down the basket and play with me. Her sister, selling postcards, and her little brother came by to play also. Intermittently, she whispers to me, you buy two flowers, okay? I save for you, as if to keep me on task. Oliver and I noticed an older boy sitting behind us, the overseer. I wondered why she kept going back to the cell. And then I realized he was there as a reminder that this was work. I am the customer, not the friend. He kept her from drifting, drifting towards the freedom of childhood. I wouldn't admit it to him, but cynical Oliver was right. I am the foreigner in a town only a week to leave her in the same place selling flowers. She knew her boundaries. She knew our roles. She was my first, but I was not the first to fall for her. On the third day, my last day in Varanasi, I arrived late, hoping to see her one last time. I sat and had chai, but no children. At this moment, knowing I might have missed her forever, I realized how attached I'd grown in only three days. I sat talking to the owner of the chai shop, and there she appeared, one hand on the hip, the other holding the basket. 
She came over to me, but the chai owner scolded her in Hindi, telling her not to bother me about buying. She was dressed up in a sparkly dress, and I complimented her on how pretty she looked today, but she ignored the compliment. All the children have an unwritten code not to accept anything from rich Westerners. No candy, no biscuits, no compliments. Only money, and only money if you are buying from them, not a handout. When my chai guy wasn't looking, she whispered in my ear, you buy three flowers today, okay? There weren't many left, and what was left was bruised, but it didn't matter to me. Okay, three it is. Impressed at how easy that was, she took it a step further, a big step. You buy all, okay? Only seven left. The flowers were only 10 rupees each. 17 cents, people. Money was not an issue. I'll buy three if you do a puja with me. Okay, no problem. All the while I knew I would buy them all, and I'm pretty sure she did too. We went down to the river to send off the flowers to Mother Ganga. My chai guy offered his boat so we could probably send the flowers off in the middle of the river. As we got into the boat, I felt her becoming uncomfortable, too intimate, crossing boundaries. But our time had come to an end. It was time for payment. I bought all seven flowers for 70 rupees. I gave her a hundred dollar rupee bill. I don't have change, she lied. Wasn't she clear that I was too smitten with her to ask for 30 rupees back? It's yours, I replied, embarrassed that I didn't give her more. There was half a moment where I felt she wanted to hug me. Okay, bye. She turned abruptly and ran off like I might change my mind and ask for my change back. I watched her leave, hoping she would turn around and give me something. A wave, a look, a smile, anything to assure me that this feeling was mutual. That I was not a psycho tourist, but that we shared a moment. Moments. She liked me. I know she did. I wasn't the same as all the others. I saw past her games, her schemes. We had something. I tried to remember her name. She never told me. I love that story. <laughs> I love it so much, one, because I love to travel. And then, two, I feel like it really gave me a glimpse of what your time was like in India and connecting with the locals, even if you're connecting on a level of an, of an exchange. And um, I'm curious, in terms of your time in India, did you feel that some of the teachings, some of the principles that you learned, did they they click or was it an aha moment um, once you got back to the states um what clicked I think what clicked for me was I think this sense of I mean it sounds really cliche but just being really present mm -hmm. I I had a scaffolding for my trip I had a, a departing ticket. I had a returning ticket. The return date was able to be malleable. The depart date was set. I knew I, I, I had when I was going to um, volunteer, those dates were set. But nothing else was really set. Mm -hmm. So I knew which cities I wanted to visit, but I was really open if something came along. 
And many things did come along, right? Meet another traveler and they would say, oh, we're going to go here. Do you want to come? Sure. Great. Um, and it was just a huge departure from my life as it had been thus far from mm -hmm. being a really good student in high school, being a good student in college, ticking off the boxes I need to, um, then continuing with this dance career, which in itself is just uh, really an overwhelming sense to, or need to please others. And it was the first time I was just kind of pleasing myself and allowing mm. my whims or the whims of whomever to lead me. Mm -hmm. And that was just liberating. It was really mm -hmm. great. <laughs> yeah. There was a, a moment I remember I was in, I don't remember what city I was in, but I was by myself. I had been by myself the whole time, basically. But I remember looking in the mirror at, in the um, hostel I was staying at, and I was like, started talking to myself in the mirror. And <laughs> I was like, oh, I think Ivory, you've been by yourself a little too long. Like maybe you want <laughs> to find a friend in this next city. Um, but it was a way to be with myself and I hadn't mm -hmm. been with myself. I traveled with other people. There had been boyfriends and lovers who I had taken these trips with. And like now mm -hmm. it was just solo. So it was just such a gift for me. Um, and then the other thing that I noticed was this was the first time where I was not actively dieting or watching my figure because during my dance career, it was always in the back of my mind that it, what am I eating? Um, and it would borderline on a place where it was unhealthy. I think it wouldn't borderline. It was definitely now where I am today, my relationship with food, with um, the things that I put into my body are is much more holistic than it was then. But this was the first time I, I didn't have to like get into a costume or I didn't have to have a, you know, bra and underwear up on stage. Mm -hmm. So I, I did. I remember one day I was living with the family and I came downstairs and they graciously made me lunch, dinner, breakfast every day. And I came downstairs for breakfast and there was nothing but carbs on the plate. It was like <laughs> Danishes um breads like and and india they have you know like these breads that are sweets mm -hmm. and then there was also sweets the the sweets that they they sell in the sweet shops and this was so there was no egg there was no lentils there was no <laughs> it was just bread and actually the mother who uh i was staying with she was like sorry today we just didn't have time so we hope that that's okay <laughs> and any other time in my life, I would have been anxious and overwhelmed, like, I cannot eat this. And I just sat down and I enjoyed it and I ate it and it was mm -hmm. fine. And like, nothing happened, mm -hmm. right? Like, I was okay afterwards. And I ended up actually, my weight came to a place where it was stable, right? It mm -hmm. wasn't fluctuating up and down. It was just the most steady it had been. And it was like, I found this new relationship with my body and with eating that was just me eating to be until I'm full or satisfied. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't done that before either. 
So wow. the trip was really transformational in that way. And I hadn't even expected mm-hmm. that to be an outcome. Wow. So you left India and then I believe you headed to LA. Yes. Is that next? Okay. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Yes. And so there were several studios that you worked at, but there was one place that you worked at that it was an awe to me because I had never experienced a yoga center like that. And that was Tantras. Um, I think the thing that really amazed me about that specific center was that first it was on the cusp of you know Beverly Hills and West Hollywood that corner it it was in this large building um I when I took class you walk in and there's like the smoothie bar and there's a hair salon and there's a boutique and then you go up these staircases and I think what really um, excited me was that I saw lots of black people taking yoga classes and I saw black instructors and instructors of all colors and body types and I heard music that I listened to and um, I'm just curious about like how was that for you because for me I was like yo (laughs) what is this place (laughs) Tantris was fantastic. It was really a wonderful um, experience. It it was short-lived, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but it was potent. And it the relationships that I have from that short but sweet time, I still have. And these are relationships with other teachers, as well as relationships with students mm-hmm. um, who are still my students today. And some of them I've seen privately since Tantras closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for our listeners, Tantras was a yoga studio that opened in, uh, I think it was 2016. Mm-hmm. Russell S- Simmons was at the helm, the, the director of this ship, and it had been his vision for a long time. And it came to fruition, um, like you said, in a really beautiful way. My favorite part of the studio, there was a downstairs and an upstairs. Upstairs is where all of the yoga happened. Downstairs, you had the apparel. You had, like you said, the blow-dry bar. So after your hot yoga class, you could (laughs) go down, get your hair washed and blown out so you could go, you know, live your best West Hollywood life. And um, (laughs) yeah, so upstairs, as you're going to the the yoga, at the... um, on each of the stairs written were yoga sutras. So, and they'd go all the way up, you know, there was 20 stairs or so, and they were written in Sanskrit, really beautiful text. Um, as you go up the stairs, and it was just such a sweet detail that if you are a yogi, you're like, oh, another yogi, another person who's devoted to this practice really put a lot of thought and heart and effort into creating Mm -hmm. this space uh, where we could all come and and create community. And that was really what Tantris did best was create community. So 
And it was community for people of color because Russell is a black man. And so you would see, like him, a lot of other black men doing yoga, which historically you walk into, you know, a Santa Monica yoga studio and you don't see that at all. Um, And yes, they came from everywhere, from all over Los Angeles. And he was very particular about playlists. On Sunday, we would have this thing called Soul Sunday. And... um, one thing that was very present and that was refreshing is that philosophy, yogic philosophy was a big part of the teachings. So, and that's what Tantras did so well is it didn't sacrifice the other seven limbs of yoga for, um, or in search of the physical practice. And that's usually what Western yogis are guilty of, right? Like we like the asana, but, we don't always infuse the other limbs of yoga. And could you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but could you tell us what those other limbs are, the eight limbs of yoga? Yeah, sure. So it's an eight limb path and asana is one of the limbs. The first two limbs are ethical principles. So things that you should do and things that you shouldn't do. And then you've got the asana, that's the physical practice. And then you've got pranayama, which is a more subtle breath practice. And then you have pratyahara, which is kind of the gateway practice into the more subtle aspects of mind and meditation. Pratyahara is withdrawal of the senses. So kind of Mm. stepping away from your computer or other people and having that moment where you're a hermit and you listen to what's going on with you. And then you move to dharana, which is a single pointed focus. And then into dhyana, which is meditation. And then finally, the eighth limb is samadhi. And samadhi is um, is sometimes translated to mean like absorption. So mm-hmm. absorbing yourself in that, that one point that you're focusing on, you merge with it and you transcend yourself. You um, feel a connection to something that's bigger than you or an interconnectedness with every living thing around you. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure for you, this has happened with dance, right? We talked about yeah. that a little bit ago and also with acting, like as mm-hmm. you are absorbing yourself into a character, you mm-hmm. transcend your own self to become one with this this character. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's many ways that this can happen, but yogic science lays out this sort of practical eight limb path for Mm. it to happen um, via all of these things, Mm -hmm. the principles, the movement, the breath, the meditation. And so you're saying that they do, they did a very great job at balancing and keeping those eight limbs as part of the programming there at Tantras. Yeah. So yogic philosophy and education was just at the heart of everything that they did. And um, it was the first time where I didn't feel shy about teaching yogic philosophy because mm-hmm. sometimes you are in a class with people who want to work out and you start the class with a Dharma talk and you see the students getting fidgety and you see people looking at their clocks and some studios don't have a phone etiquette so you actually see people scrolling on their and you know you just like 
okay, I don't think my Dharma talk is going over too well. <laughs> uh, so let me just let me just give the people what they came for, which is mm-hmm. let me turn the music up loud and let's move our bodies. And I try to do that as skillfully as possible so that there is, it's like you give them what they come for, but then you also give them what they need. And so mm-hmm. you try to find that balance in some way. But here I didn't have to play that game. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually able to give them all of it because there is this element of music, which was really big at Tantris, but there's also the Dharma talks are welcomed. Um, and then all the teachers were, were very skilled. So it, it was it was wonderful. It was a wonderful place. And it was yeah. really nice seeing people of color coming in. And you know what else was really nice, Ketanya, was, um, you know, you think that people don't want that. Mm-hmm. Like the example that I just gave, I try to do it and then it doesn't go over well. But then you offer up a space like this and you see people come in droves and it's mm-hmm. like they're craving mm-hmm. that thing that has been void in many other yoga studios for a long time. And they sit and they want to hear the Dharma talks and there's conversations afterwards about, well, how do I weave this into my life? And mm-hmm. it, I'm, I was blessed and still to this day very grateful that I had the chance to to work there yeah that's i am grateful that i had an opportunity to check it out while it was still thriving you know um i'm curious i want to come back to some of the yoga principles and i'm curious for you as a teacher as a student you know what principles do you find you lean toward naturally and then what do you find you talk about and why do you talk about that with your students um let's see which principles do i like to talk about the most yeah which ones do you lean toward i think i lean towards the limb of I mean, all of them, right? Like it's such a complete system Mm -hmm. and it, each of the limbs offers such a great way uh, for us to regulate ourselves. And which one would I lean towards the most? I guess this idea of Pratyahara is a big one. Right. So uh, you get a chance to just withdraw. Hmm. We are on the go all day long. We're interfacing with um, technology a lot. We're interfacing with other people a lot. And so taking a moment to um, just pause on your mat. There's a teacher who has classes on glow as well, Richard Miller. And at the beginning of his classes, he often says, let's stop to start so let's pause before we begin Mm -hmm. and i think that's just a really important message because otherwise it's just something else that you're checking off when you come onto your yoga mat like i didn't do Mm -hmm. my practice today okay let's do it here we go up down five sun salutations and a little shavasana and we're done and you're not there Mm -hmm. fully 
So encouraging students to pause, to slow down their momentum, the momentum of your day, the momentum that brings you to your mat, like just push pause for a second is mm -hmm. really important. And then the practices, which are, are, are most of the, the breath and the movement practices of um, trying to regulate and downgrade the nervous system. Mm. So our nervous systems get deregulated all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You're driving in traffic, you have an argument with your kid, your kid doesn't do what they're supposed to do, your husband, your wife, like all of the things that mm -hmm. could possibly come and deregulate you during a day. And the yoga practice has these really wonderful tools to help um, you regulate your nervous system at any given point of the day. So mm -hmm. offering these tools during the practice, not only as tools that you use on your mat, but that are tools that you can take with you anywhere you go. So you have mm -hmm. a toolbox now of things that I can do when I am triggered, mm -hmm. when I feel anger beginning to bubble up, when I feel the anxiety starting to come on. What do I do? Um, so those are things that I, I, I want, I want the practice to be practical and for it to feel like you can, you know, strap it on your back and take it with you anywhere you go. It doesn't mm -hmm. just have to, you don't have to save it for 8am on your yoga mat. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that you find challenging or you have to remind yourself to re-engage with? in your practice? Uh, yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> All of it over and over again. Uh, a lesson is repeated until it is learned, right? So mm -hmm. um, none of it's, I, I think there's different seasons in your life. And mm -hmm. I have entered into a new, new season of motherhood that is just challenging in many ways I hadn't expected. And so it's as if I'm having to relearn all of the lessons for um, a, a different and a new challenge. Mm -hmm. And the lessons that applied when I thought I had it, it's like you raise the stakes, you up the challenge the same way we do in our classes. Okay, we'll try it this way. Now let's add a two pound weight. Mm -hmm. Or let's add this, let's add that and see if you can still keep your composure. You can still keep mm -hmm. all of the details that I've given you when the stakes were really low. Let's see if you can keep it now. So mm -hmm. I think that life will continue doing that. I've come to a place where I realize, oh, okay, so there's no there there, right? Like we're waiting to get to a place where everything's just okay. And that doesn't exist. I, I figured that out, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something. And I'm like, oh, okay. So this just cycles. There is no finish line. <laughs> no, there is no finish line. Um, yeah, once you reach that one base camp, there's another one just above you. Um, yeah. So the, which is why I think the yoga practice is so beautiful because it's there for you to keep coming back to as mm -hmm. the challenges shift and morph and change. Mm -hmm. 
Lovely. Did I answer your full your question fully? You did. Yes. Um, we are coming to a close, and there's so much more to learn about you. I, I love that we've had this time together. Um, I was thinking, maybe you can lead us through a minute or two of breathing exercise that the listeners can, you know, always come back to rewind and you know work with. Yes, that would be awesome. Let's do that for sure. Um, Okay, so if you are at home or wherever you are, um, just sit up a little taller so you feel some connection with your spine from the base of your spine all the way up to the crown of your head. And if it feels okay for you, close your eyes. Obviously, if you're listening to this in your car, do not do that. But if you are in a space where you can, let your eyes soften. Your gaze start to move from external to internal. You're closing your outer eye, opening your inner eye, beginning to hear also what the inner landscape has to offer. See what the inner landscape has. Become more curious about your breath see how it is just now without shifting or manipulating it. And then begin to manipulate the breath so that the inhales are fuller and the exhales are longer. The belly will rise on the inhale and then with ease it falls on the exhale. And then just take a moment to think back on your day. If it's the beginning of your day, maybe thinking back on yesterday and all of the stresses that you had to encounter today, yesterday. Maybe you can include the whole week, stuff going on with your family, your parents, your kids, stuff happening with work. Maybe there's a a shift or a change that you are in the middle of. Just all the things that are really just getting on your nerves right now. And feel the, there's a feeling tone that as you think about those things comes up in your body. Maybe your shoulders begin to hunch up to your ears or you're starting to grip your hands into fists. Your belly tightens. And what we're going to do is we'll indulge in that. We're going to indulge in these feelings. We're going to acknowledge them. We will really ramp up the tension and then we'll use the exhale to allow some or a lot of that to dissolve. So let's start with an exhale. Just let out an easy sigh. And then inhale, tense up your feet, your legs, your thighs, clench your butt. Suck your navel to your spine. Start to grip your hands like fists. Let the shoulders rise up to the ears and just feel tension all in your body, the muscles around your eyes and face and mouth. You're gripping your jaw. And then just stay here in this tense place, thinking of all those things that make you tense. Take a deep breath in, tense up a little more. 
And then a nice, slow, long exhale. And as you exhale, you untense. You let the shoulders drip. You let the belly spill. You let the palms and the soles of the feet ungrip. Take a couple of extra inhales and lengthened exhales to gradually just dissolve that tension. We'll do that one more time. Inhale, grip everything, feet, lower legs, upper legs, torso, arms. Good, shoulders to ears. You can take your chest to your chin, scrunch up the muscles around your face. Inhale more for three, for two, for one. And then nice, long, slow exhale. And as you exhale, you allow the tension to dissolve. Soften the muscles around your eyes and your jaw. Let your belly spill. Arms melt. Soles of the feet ground. And just take a moment to acknowledge this space of ease, of quiet. This space of release. And know that this space is available to you always. There's a part of you that is never anxious, is never injured, is never hurt, is never hurried. A part of you that's always whole and intact. And this part and this space is available to you whenever you need it. You don't need to buy anything to access it. You don't need to do anything special to get close to this space. Just pause, close your eyes, focus on your breath, and reconnect. May the space be available to you anytime you need it. Namaste. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ivory. If um, if you listeners would like to learn more about Ivory or what she has going on, please share with us, Ivory, your website or what you got going on the next couple of months or next year or this year or tomorrow. <laughs> yes, please connect with me. I'm a real human and I like... <laughs> This digital space is, um, sometimes I'm just wary of it and I want us to still know that we can connect in the physical. Um, if you're in Los Angeles, I teach in-person classes. What are those? Um, at Moto Yoga uh, on La Brea. So if you go to Moto Yoga or you could go to my website and my schedule's there. And um, I obviously can see you on Glow. 
Um, I teach every Wednesday, the live, uh, Glow Live, and then there's a host of, obviously, uh, in-studio classes that you can get. I'm planning a Mother's Day retreat, uh, 2023, so this coming Mother's Day. It'll be the weekend, so we will get together Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'll send you home Sunday morning, rejuvenate it so that you can actually enjoy your family and your children. Uh, I find that what mothers really want for Mother's Day is a day off. Uh, so this will be a weekend off before the Mother's Day. And that will be up on my website soon. I'm still uh, getting some details together. And then I'm also really interested in art and wellness. for So yoga for creatives, uh, this yogic path specifically for creative, creatives to remind artists that it's our birthright to be creatives and not to second guess ourselves which I did spend quite a bit of my dance career doing. So I'm also going to be starting some retreats and uh, resources for that. So if you're creative, which we are all creatives, mm. then um, yes, keep an eye out for some things that I have in the pipeline for that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ivory. Thank you, Kaitanya. This was wonderful. And there was only, there was one other thing that we didn't talk about, and I'm just remembering uh, it now. Okay, tell I'm me. Gonna, <laughs> there was uh, Cirque du Soleil, rewinding back there, 10 mm. shows a week, creativity, drained, where is it, can't find it. Your piece oh. that you choreograph. so we have this thing called, what was it? Uh, Working in, oh, the it was a uh what is it called the the, the Cirque du Soleil choreographer choreographer showcase showcase mm -hmm. so every year to help artists with their creativity and to keep you know uh, our our knives sharp so to speak um Ketanya entered her piece and and auditioned so we audition we get to audition for our own um our fellow dancers and Ketanya did this piece and I auditioned and I got to dance that when you did that piece when we had the rehearsals it just felt like my connection back to dance when I was dancing in New York when I was mm. dancing in Chicago even in the the student-run dance group graffiti when I was in college and it was just such a special time that I I couldn't wait to come to those rehearsals. Oh, and that's awesome. I got to perform Ketanya's piece. It was beautiful. I don't know if there's a video that lives somewhere of it, but maybe online. I have to look at the dig. <laughs> I just don't know if I ever really told you how um special of a time that that was and how mm -hmm. necessary it was mm -hmm. just for me and my need to be able like to remind myself like can I still do this anymore uh because you forget when you've been doing the same movement over and over again that's so, lovely to hear shout out to you <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome oh what a time right yeah <laughs> sweet Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. 
You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.